A scripture passage is found in the prophecies of Isaiah and then in the writings of the gospel writer Luke. Three select portions. Hear now the word of the Lord. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Then Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All three of these passages speak of the birth of a baby boy. The first one that we read out of Isaiah 7 was a prophecy given to Isaiah, a promise by the Lord as a sign to King Ahaz back in his day, 700 plus years before the birth of Christ. God was going to give a sign to Ahaz. And he said, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. If you just read over one chapter, you'll see where the prophet Isaiah says, I went into the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. One more time, God is giving us kind of a little precursor to the real event. When God spoke to the pair in the garden who had just sinned. He promised them the birth of a son. Salvation is wrapped up in the birth of a baby, a baby boy. But it's a special baby boy. It wasn't Eve's son, Cain. It wasn't the prophetess's son born of Isaiah. 
Meher shall hashbaz. I think I left out a syllable in that. But it keeps moving forward in prophecy. There's going to be a baby born. And you shall call his name, and we saw this last week, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to come to us. And the passage we looked at last week especially was the fulfillment of this where it, in chapter 9 of Isaiah talks about the light coming to the Gentiles. And that portion of Israel that was largely Gentile, that's an area around the Sea of Galilee of those ancient tribes of Asher and Nathalie. These were the Zebulun, I mean. These were the ones that had seen the great light because the light of the world had come to them in the person of Jesus Christ. And the promise was always, always the salvation of the people, the nations, the Gentiles. Salvation came to Israel in her Messiah, in her long-expected one, in her king, in her Davidic king, and in the promised one, the seed, the offspring of Abraham. The son of David, it came to Israel, God's people, but it came through Israel to all the nations, to all the peoples, to the children of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The world population was to receive that salvation that came through Israel. And that's the great promise. Over and over we read about God promising his people. And that you see in this particular passage, the birth story in Luke of the coming of Jesus. Notice in the Luke passage, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and there's a lot here, and we're not going to spend time on this. We have in Advent seasons past spent some time in this passage, but the highlights of it is to remember that Mary was a faithful and humble maiden, handmaiden of the Lord. She was a descendant of Judah. She was of the royal tribe. She was also a descendant of Levi. She was a relative to Elizabeth who was a direct descendant of Aaron the priest. Mary was a priestly heir. So in Jesus' humanity, born of this virgin, in his humanity, Jesus was of the lineage of Judah, the kingly, princely tribe, but also of Levi, the tribe of the priesthood. When we get back here in about three or four weeks get Christmas kind of out of the way, we get back to our study in Hebrews, we're going to come immediately upon the passages that talk about the great high priest that we have, which is both a king as he is descended from David's tribe, Judah, and also a priest, a high priest, as he has been appointed such by the Lord himself. But here we see something of the birth narrative and the thing that we see in Mary is the emotion. She was greatly troubled. Contemplate her physical circumstances for about 
20 seconds. And you'll see why this young maiden of the Lord was greatly troubled. She was conceiving a baby. And she had not been married. It had never known a man in any way physically. But she was engaged to a man. This same thing is told in Matthew, and let me read just a couple of paragraphs out of Matthew's gospel, the first chapter. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the verse we just read, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here you see Joseph's situation. Spend another 20 seconds contemplating his situation. He was a just man, a righteous man. He knew what the law said about a woman that you're to marry and finds herself pregnant. He knew what he was supposed to do. And he knew he had to do the right thing, the lawful thing. But at the same time, he loved her and didn't want to put her to shame. He knew he had to divorce her. He had to call off the marriage. He had to break the very legally binding betrothal. But knowing he had to divorce her didn't mean he had to humiliate her. Didn't mean he had to put her to public shame. Didn't mean he had to turn her over for the punishment. He could divorce her quietly, privately, just very discreetly remedy the situation. But the angel appeared to him in a dream and told him what was happening. What was happening was this. And it's found in chapter 9 of Isaiah we just read. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. What's happening here, Mary? What's happening here, Joseph? is that the Lord is fulfilling his great promise and he's bringing into the human race God himself, God with us. And he's doing it for a purpose. He's entering into the human condition in order that he might redeem it and restore it. And he is therefore called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That's what Jesus came to do. He's identified to be my sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. That's what Jesus will say. He has a people. He has a sheep. He has a fold. He has a flock. The Father has given him. What's happening here in this incredible birth story is that Isaiah 6, the very first few words are being fulfilled quite literally. Now, we've heard this phrase all of our life. We read it on the Christmas cards. Fun to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. It's Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew parallelism, as you know, is a statement will be made, and then the wording will be changed. Synonyms will be used, and the same meaning is given in a, a second sentence. And so there is a parallel to it. And essentially, we interpret parallelisms as to be saying the same thing. It's the change of the vocabulary that just simply gives it a different nuance of meaning or maybe even fills out the meaning some more, reinforces the central truth. But in this particular parallelism, I want you to pay attention because this bears sound theological exposition. Unto us a child is born. That's the birth. That's the human mother, Mary. That's the lineage from Eve. That's the promise God made to the woman. And now the woman is bearing a child. A little, as Shakespeare would say, a muling, puking baby. <laughs> I don't know what muling means, but I think I know what puking means. A muling, puking baby. Little bundle of joy. Infant. That's human. That's as human as it gets. That's the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. That's the literal fulfillment of God becoming with us, coming to save us, coming into our condition to wrap his arms around us and rescue it, rescue us from it. That's Jesus' humanity. But the second part of that parallelism there in verse 6 says as much but not altogether identical for to us a son is given can you see the difference now we've identified the child is just from a human baby to a son and this son has great significance because this son is the son of God and this son will be the appointed heir according to Psalm 2 this day I have begotten thee, says the Lord. Thou art my son. It's the language of adoption. We see the same thing here back in the Matthew story where it says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What's going on with Joseph calling Jesus by the name Jesus? Not Joseph Jr., but Jesus. That's his adopting of Jesus. That's his naming of Jesus. That's placing his ownership upon him as his son. And Joseph himself was a direct descendant of King David. But the divine adoption is what is in view in the second psalm. And the divine adoption says, this is my son, this is the appointed one, this is the one I adopt, this is the one that I place upon the throne 
The picture in the Bible of this child of the king is King Solomon. David had a lot of sons, but it was Solomon that received the divine appointment to be the prince, the ruler, the one of the lineage. And the second psalm, which is a coronation psalm, says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations, the peoples, the Gentiles. Ask of me and I will give you the earth as a possession. The earth as a possession. All the land on the globe is yours as an inheritance. All the people on the globe that I give to you are yours as an inheritance. You're the rightful heir. You're the one that brings it all. You're the one that has it all. You're the one to whom everything points and to whom everything belongs. These are legal and divine forensic and royal transactions that God is bestowing upon this little baby there in the manger in Bethlehem. He's making him the king of Israel, but mainly the king of the kings, the Lord of the lords, the king of all the earth. That's why when we talk about, I'll just give this as an aside, <laughs> that's why when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, when we see all the promises God made to Abraham, we see every one of them fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is that blessing that God promised Abraham. Jesus is that great name, which we'll see in just a moment. He is that great name that God promised to Abraham. Jesus is that great nation, which we'll see in just a moment, that God promised to Abraham. And Jesus inherits that great land that God promised to Abraham. A promise that God made to Abraham was in literal contemporaneous terms, but it had magnificent future eschatological fulfillment. It went way beyond the Abrahamic family. It went all to the nations. It went way beyond the name of Abraham to the name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings. The great blessing is that salvation has come in Christ. And the great land is the whole earth. It's not just a little raggedy piece of real estate down in the Middle East. It is the earth is the true fulfillment. Christ is the land. Everything God promised Abraham, he fulfilled in Christ. Now back to our message. And we conclude with just four little phrases. And they're found there in the balance of chapter 6. These are the throne names of King Jesus. In fact, just to, just to brief us there, let's, let's see what the angel told Mary again. Let's talk about you'll, you'll bear a son. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is speaking of the royal government the reign, the eternal reign, the righteous rule, and the perpetual kingship of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. We're going to talk about the government because the rest of chapter 9 talks about the government 
that God bestows upon his people through their governor, through their king, through the regent, the regency of Christ. But listen to how the throne names are delineated. There's four of them. His name shall be called. He will be designated along these lines. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me briefly sketch them for you. Give about a minute to each one of them, then we're done. Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful means wonder-working, powerful, miracle-working, almost beyond natural ability into supernatural ability. That was one of the first demonstrable things Jesus did in his ministry was to show his wonder-working power. And wonderful counselor. A counselor is the wise one, the prudent one, the one that sees and understands and is able to give advice and counsel and direction. A kingdom is absolutely stands or falls by the strength of the counsel of the king. And this also refers back to King Solomon. King Solomon was considered the wisest man of his day. And his righteous rule and his expansive rule, which was the greatest of the expansion of the entire monarchy of Israel under King Solomon, was a result of Solomon's wisdom and his wonder-working power. Mighty God, it says, the view here is that of a mighty warrior. In fact, the passage, that portion of the passage that we skipped, it says, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. Verse 3, they rejoice before you with the joy of the harvest. They're glad when they divide the spoil. It's victory language. It's a harvest, bringing in the huge harvest. It's, it's, it's the spoils of war, going to war and bringing massive amounts of loot home from a conquered enemy. That's the picture in both Testaments of the miraculous and the wonderful, mighty work of God in salvation. Ephesians 4 especially. It says, verse 4, The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his impressors you have broken as in the day of Midian. This contemplates two great victories God gave when he talks about the yoke of the burden. It's talking about the Egyptian bondage where they were put under a heavy yoke and a heavy burden and an oppression as a people for several hundred years. God broke that yoke of Pharaoh and delivered them. The other reference here is to in the land of Midian was in the days of the judges, the days of the Amphictyoni, after they had entered the land but had not become a monarchy yet. The days before uh, Solomon, I mean uh, Samuel, the days before the kingship, when Gideon was raised up to defend the people against the Midianites who were oppressors. And so the picture here is of a heavy yoke being placed upon you. Right in a moment, we, in next time we'll get down where it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the yoke that's on the shoulder, the burden, the weight. Jesus is going to take away the sinful yoke, the enslavement and the thraldom to sin, and to give us a yoke of righteousness, a yoke of holiness. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. That's what we do as believers. We take his yoke and we learn of him and we follow him. And his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Why? Because he doesn't have the oppression of sin. He has won. And that's the picture here of the mighty God. He's a warrior. He's victorious. He's won the battle over sin. 
and Satan and death and hell. He's the mighty warrior. In the, in the ancient world, they looked upon their strong man, their mighty man, their king, as having attributes of deity. And that's what's being said about Jesus. In the case of the ancient kings, it was, it was just simply metaphorical. In the case of Christ, it is real and literal. He is, as our king, a mighty warrior. He fights our battles, he wins, and he gives us the victory so that we enjoy the harvest, the bounty, and the spoil, the good things, spiritually, and even physically, and, and materially in a lot of ways, but especially do we enjoy spiritually and for all eternity. That's the wonderful counselor as he approaches the leadership of his people, the mighty God as he's a victor, then the everlasting father, the everlasting is this, his throne will be like no other throne. We mark every dynasty with years. You know, the Hasboro dynasty, the Tudor dynasty, the Ming dynasty. We study dynasties that go across generations and maybe centuries. But the dynasty of Christ is he will rule forever upon the throne. When we come to Christ, we're coming to a whole new order, a whole new cosmos, a whole new humanity really because that's what it says here the everlasting father is that it is not only eternal but Jesus is a father in what sense because he is the progenitor the founder of a whole new humanity he's the father of a new race he's a new Adam a second Adam and those that are born of him those whom he has sired spiritually by his spirit belong to him. And we're part of that new nation and that new humanity. And so he is our father. He's called a, a captain, a file leader, a head, a father. This is supreme patriarchy because it is the supreme patriarch. Our father, Jesus Christ, the king. And then finally it says, he is the Prince of Peace. These four throne names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Peace is Shalom. It's what the name Solomon means, Shalom Solomon. It is that sense of well-being, that, that whole a package of salvation. Peace, prosperity, healing, wholeness, well-being, right with God, tranquility. All of those things that the human heart longs for are wrapped in a package. And that's why it says a son is given. It's a bestowal for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a bestowal. We don't earn it. We don't shape it. We don't make it. Peace is goodwill. Do you hear the, do you hear the voice of the angels? Peace on earth. Goodwill. Shalom. Peace, well-being, wholeness, happiness, salvation, eternally for God's people. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Let me just anticipate next week, just, just for a moment. If the government is upon his shoulders, and if he's a sovereign, how should we relate to him? How do you relate to a sovereign? who has the government upon his shoulders. In other words, he's the, the final arbiter of all. He is the one who holds all the power. He's the one that issues the edicts. He's the one that declares who 
is in his kingdom and who is not? Who belongs to him and who doesn't? Who follows him and obeys him and loves him with all their heart? And who's a rebel and a doubter and a blasphemer? The way you relate to a sovereign is a bended knee and a bowed head. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Let me suggest to you, every means every. I'm, I'm a real literal expounder of scripture at that point. <laughs> every means every. You'll bow your knee to him in this life. And you'll recognize him as the sovereign Lord of all. And you'll treat him that way and relate to him that way. Or you'll bow your knee to him when he comes in his majesty and his power and his glory. You'll bow then, but it will be the bow of surrender and defeat, and it will be everlastingly too late to recognize his royalty and his sovereignty and his lordship at that point. Don't let the sun go down tonight. And the sunsets are coming sooner and sooner these days. Don't let the sun go down tonight without you having Christ as your Lord.